I had such a good time talking to Rashid today. Rashida Ali is one of my Arabic students and a graduate of the Arabic in 60 Steps Intensive from the USA. I really, really hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, welcome to all of you watching from home and a very warm welcome to Rashida Ali to the Arabic with Sam podcast. It gives me great pleasure, Brother Rashid Ali. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. How are you today, Akhi? Alhamdulillah, I'm good. I'm doing very well. I get to talk to my teacher, Sam, Suleiman. I'm, I'm happy. It's a good day. It's the highlight of my day today. Allahu Akbar. Alhamdulillah. Well, actually, you actually are the first guest now with kind of changing things back to Arabic with Sam, actually. Um, yeah, obviously, we had lots of we had lots of guests actually as um, as Arabic in sixty steps. But you are uh, you have the the crown, the honor of uh, being our being our first uh, back here. So, um, so what I want to do, inshallah, is I want to talk a little bit about um, about your journey learning the Arabic language a little bit. I kind of want to talk about how you even came in, came, how you even kind of decided to start learning the Arabic language and what your motivations were. A bit about your background and how you came in touch with it and. Um, yeah, we'll come into talking a little bit about how you know me and what kind of program we've done together and stuff as well, inshallah. So, um, so firstly, yeah, would you mind kind of firstly just talking about when you first decided to learn Arabic as a language, like a bit about your background and when you came in touch with Arabic as a language? Sure, sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to tell you about my background and make this more of a dialogue than a, than a speech. So, you know, have some, have some good questions for me as I, as I tell you the journey. But I'd say I first wanted to learn when I was a kid. Uh, we had a Quran in the house. So my 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 parents are Muslim. I'm Muslim. I live in the in the states. Um, my family became Muslim in the '60s and '70s um, during the time of uh, some may know Malcolm X. So um, there was a Quran in the house where I grew up, and I was taught Surah Ikhlas as a child uh, before I could really remember anything. So I don't actually remember learning it, um, but that's what I wanted to learn, and I would. Not have any video games or cell phones because we didn't have those back then. So I would walk around looking at the different books in the house and I saw the Quran and I picked it up and wanted to know what these funny squiggles were. That was the first time I wanted to learn. MashaAllah. Were you, were you kind of sent to a madrasa when you were younger? I wasn't. I wasn't. So where I grew up and part of, uh, I guess I'd say the community of culture I was coming from, there wasn't the same emphasis on like madrasas and and these different tutors and things like they're in other, other cultures uh because islam in america has been you know for the for the large portion of it is somewhat new so a lot of people didn't know how to speak arabic didn't know um a lot about islam i'd even say so yeah. it wasn't part of the culture yet Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. And that, that's actually something um, that I actually wasn't aware of about your family, actually. I wasn't aware that Islam was that new in your family. It's um, it's quite rare that you come across people who Islam is that new. Do you know what I mean? Like quite often you're talking to people from Muslim-majority countries who uh, their Islam has been in their family since, you know, like like early trade with Arab settlers and things like that. Yeah, well, yeah, who knows when. Yeah, quite often. Yeah, subhanAllah. That's, that's very, very interesting. Okay, so you're kind of a... Okay, so you have an experience like lots of Muslim children, right? Like you see a Quran in the house, you see the squiggles. The squiggles in the Quran aren't the same squiggles that you're seeing in books at school and, and things like that, right? But like, but when did it kind of click that it was a language, that it was like a language that people speak and use for things other than the squiggles in the Quran? I don't know, because I have four children myself, and three of them are over the age of five, and I've come to learn that anything that happens before they're five years old, they just don't remember. Um, so I, I don't really know when, it, when I realized it was a language, um, but it was probably the second language I ever heard of, you know? I might have heard of Chinese in school somewhere, you know, so oh, he sounds like he's speaking Chinese, but I had already seen and been exposed to Arabic, because I knew Aslam Alaikum, I knew the Fatiha, I knew sort of class. So I, I knew these things, but I don't think I ever looked at it as a language as if, as much as they're just different words that mean different things. Um, so I don't know. I can't answer that really. But where you're from in the US, is there a is there a large Arabic speaking community or is that not is that not a demographic that makes up most of the Muslims? No, it's not. So I actually grew up in an Arbor, Michigan. Um, but because of uh, just kind of cultural and community ties, we went to Detroit very often. And um, as some people know, the Detroit is where uh, um, Islam kind of took root um, in America in the in the 30s. So there's a lot of people that have grandparents and great grandparents that are African-American in Detroit 
that um, are Muslim, but similar to certain parts of like, what I've learned as I've gotten older, certain parts of rural like Pakistan or other places, they don't necessarily learn a lot about the religion or about the language. They're still kind of newer to it. And that's how, that's how we were. So there wasn't a lot of people talking about um, how to read and, and, and practice and whatnot. It was more so a uh, cultural phenomenon that, that kind of came about. Like a, okay. some of the tradition to how, um, like I remember my father used to talk about how he knew and kind of grew up with like Siraj Hajj or, or Farrakhan or um, um, Zay Shakar and, and different people because there were so few of them, they all knew each other. And then they went off into their different ways of practicing. Um, yeah. So I think that my generation and those who are a little bit older than me are the first ones who are starting to really travel and and um, learn and study the language and become fluent. You know, I think the first Medina graduate that I know of from the States that was African-American is probably like 50 years old. So, um, and, and, you know, obviously he wasn't born in 1930. So there's a lot of, a lot of growth that has happened there. So for me, I, I didn't really know. I just kind of knew some things. I didn't really know I could learn it because I, it was different from Spanish and it wasn't taught in school. All we learned in Spanish in the States, really. I mean, all we learned is the second language in the States when I was growing up was Spanish, maybe yeah. a little bit of French. Um, mm -hmm. I went to a private school, so I got to learn some Latin. Um, mm -hmm. But Arabic was never offered, and there weren't very many Arab kids around. There's a lot of Somali kids. I knew some Somali words, a lot of Pakistani kids. I knew how to speak to Abaji and to, to get where to get the biryani, but um, I, there was, just wasn't that Arabic component until, until I was in high school where I was fortunate to go to a uh, high school that was paired with a community college. And some of the community college students uh, were studying Arabic and they started to teach me. So that, that's when I kind of really began to, that's when I got my alphabets at in high school. Okay, right. Just um, for other international listeners, um, what, what does high school mean for you? Like what, what age are you talking about? Sure. So um, high school is the third kind of tier in schooling. Uh, you have elementary school from ages five to 10-ish. Then you have middle school from 10 to 13, roughly. Um, and then you have high school, which is 14, 15, 16, 17. And you usually mm -hmm. graduate when you're 18 and begin college or university, okay, sure. as, as my buddy okay. said. Mashallah. And okay, cool. It's interesting that you mentioned kind of um, seeing like an improvement and a progression in uh, uptake of the Arabic language in, in the US. Like it's not something we were talking about before we actually started this podcast. Um, I wanted to ask you whether like whether Norman Ali Khan, like the institution of, of Mayina TV and stuff like that too, had any impact on on your on your desire to learn Arabic because like what, what, whatever like what, whatever you think about about Mayina TV or about Norman Ali Khan or anything like that like I know there's always there's there's always drama between all of our teachers and stuff on YouTube and things like that so I just caveat it I just caveat it with whatever you think about people you can't you you can't question that like the desire to learn Arabic in the English speaking world has been massively impacted by Norman Ali Khan. Like even me and my teaching of the Arabic language, no, no doubt, even like the story walkthroughs and stuff that I do, like I've got no doubt in my mind that they're influenced somehow by how I listened to him deliver those, those uh, that early like tafsir of Juzamma, for example, and things like that. I just wondered if you had noticed that as well in the US. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, usually when I have conversations with people, that's one of the first programs they bring up. Um, it's either that or the Medina books. And that's okay. what everyone always talks about, Numan Ali Khan or the Medina books. Um, I think there's a couple other programs out there that are popular. And then I say, well, what about Arabic with Sam? You know, what about 60 Steps? <laughs> um, and now we talk about Arabic Unlocked, right? Uh, but normally those are the ones I hear about. Uh, but it didn't really so much influence me because I'm old. When I was in my teenage years and 20s, there were no programs. There was one program based out of Detroit called the Mali Institute. And it was focusing on grammar, grammar structure and verb forms. And it didn't really have a conversational or vocabulary component. Um, it didn't have some of the things that I was kind of looking for. Um, so I kept looking, kept looking. And my the lack of tools and resources kind of uh, 
dampened my my desire or passion to learn um, until COVID. Really, COVID is when I took the class during COVID, didn't I? Uh, well, the intensive with me. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're you're in the uh, you're in the very interesting um, yeah COVID cohort, which was the first intensive we ever did. Um, I believe we started in like uh, was it April? Something we started in. Um, that year, because because we went through the whole of Ramadan, I remember. And I think that we we went through the Arabic and sixty steps intensive for about three and a half months, something like that. We, we spent together. Um, yeah. So what what year would that have been? Was it two thousand and twenty or twenty one? Something. It was twenty one. I think it was twenty one that we did that. I'm not mm-hmm. certain, but I think it was. Okay. I know that um, I had some friends in some some. So I was involved with the Masjid probably since twenty ten. You know kind of rounding out my 20s. Uh, I got really involved in the masjid, uh, started my family and such. So then there were people, people would come to the masjid to try and teach the Medina books or this other blue book that they always have. Uh, and I would I would study and focus, but then they would only stay for a weekend and leave. So there was not really any traction. Um, there was a couple of brothers from Sudan that attended my masjid. So I would sit with them and try and learn. Um, but you know how it is when you meet somebody and it's just they're not really a teacher, but they just happen to speak the language. You pick up a couple words, they help you do some reading, and then you kind of have some tea and talk about life and end up missing the whole class. It's more of a social gathering, right? Um, but I had one teacher, Muhammad, and his he was very close and, and, and dear to me. And that's where I have a lot of love for Sudan. Uh, in fact, after Fusa, I would like to learn the Sudanese dialect. Um, uh, and I named, I named my son after his son, Thoha. So um, that was that was a part of my journey as well. But after that, I just tried to learn to read more fluently. Um, and then there was the local master that I go to near my home. They had a class where they would help people to read and to recite. And I noticed I was slower than the than the twenty year, being probably thirty seven years old. I was slower to read than some of the twenty year olds or the fifteen year olds. And I was like, I don't I don't like this. I want to change that. So when I would go for a run, I would listen to different podcasts on Arabic. And there's one podcast that stands out more than the most, and that's that's Sam, that's Suleiman. So And now you're now you're a guest. You're our you're our welcome guest on that very podcast, mashallah. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. So I enjoyed listening to those and I tried to reach out to to him to find out more about his program and and he kept ducking me. I'm joking. <laughs> it was kind of hard to reach for like the first three weeks, but eventually I figured out how to sign up and I wanted to sign up and, and it was tough. So I decided that I would go all in and do the intensive. Um, and that was probably one of the first steps in my, in my journey of learning, speaking and reading Arabic. You know, I think um, I really I've been thinking about this a lot recently about the merit of committing to something intensively. Like even in my life, there's lots of things that I would really love to learn well. Like there's lots of different languages that I'd love to learn well, and um, there's also like other skills that I want to get better at. Like I want to get better at business. I want to get better at calisthenics. I want to get better just there's other things I'd like to get good at. I'd like to get back into jujitsu at some point. But really, you can't really do everything. Like if if you were to have maybe five five disciplines that you wanted to get good at in you know, in 2024, for example, like a lot of people take the approach of trying to squeeze them all in to your week somehow, have like a really busy schedule where you're switching between different tasks and stuff. But I've really come to believe that there are kind of fundamental things you need to be doing every day. Like you need to be doing the farad of your religion. You need to take care of your family. You need to be doing like the basic things to take care of your health. But in terms of like pursuing excellence in particular disciplines, I think it, it would you would be best served if you spent 2024 doing two intensive months of one language you want to learn, two intensive months and, and really seek like, not, not that you can achieve mastery and things in two months necessarily, but have that kind of attitude, like have beyond your farah, not just in the religion, but in life. Like once your work is taken care of, your family taken care of, um, you know, you've, you've taken care of your obligations. The rest of the time should be for mastery in, a, in one particular thing. So I, I think humans kind of overestimate how good we are at multitasking. I'm not convinced we're very good at all at, at it, um, <laughs> which is a shame because lots of us would really like to be. But um, So I think there's a lot of merit. So I'd be interested to know if that was sort of your experience as well. Not, I mean, you're, you're, mashallah, you're a family man. You've got lots of children and stuff, mashallah. So I doubt it felt very much like you weren't juggling lots of things. But I mean, did, did you find that it was... 
Um, or maybe I'll phrase it as a question, actually. Like, whilst you're doing the intensive program with me, were you also doing lots of other things as well? Or for that period of your life, were you sort of, I'll take care of my main stuff, but then outside of that, I am Sam's Arabic student. What, what was your routine like during that time? Interesting question. What was my routine like during that time? Um, well, I, I'll answer the, the direct question and then also the implied question, right? So the direct question, what was my routine like? I think I was focusing on family, of course. Um, the silhouette, um, making sure I attend those. Um, trying to build build my marriage. I mean, I was probably still within my 10 years, so I was still building my marriage, understanding how to be a good husband. Uh, at that time, I only had three children, but um, there were some, some challenges at that time with that. So, you know, there's a lot of things going on. Um, I also was, at that time, I was not doing Boy Scouts, but I was doing uh, a reading. So I had a, had a teacher from Egypt that I would recite to every morning. We went over a Tajweed book, and then we would probably take about four pages from the Quran each day. Um, so I was doing that as well, which could be argued that that's more tangential as opposed to a separate item because it's similar. It's, it's all Arabic, right? Um, yeah, but I'd say to kind of your, your point, um, I'm, I'm never going to be able to put a full intensive on something, right? Because I'm going to have children. I'm going to have parents. I'm going to have the gym. I'm going to have running. I'm going to have squats, hopefully. Uh, and I'm also going to have memorization. I'm going to have hobbies. I'm going to have, want to go kayaking. I'm going to want to, you know, clean my car, you know, or take, you know, maybe play with a cat, get a cat or something. I don't know, but there's always going to be things taking my attention, not to mention a job, right? And corporate jobs mm -hmm. can be sometimes 50, 60 hours a week. There's always going to be something vying for your attention. So I have seen often a lot of people say, you know, cut out this time dedicated to it. I don't find that to be realistic, personally. Um, I think it has benefited a lot of people. I think that the example of the Hufaz is really the best example. Um, you know, of course, Prophet Muhammad being a Hafith, right? And, and those who are Hafith to follow his example is to take part of what you know in review, take part of what you know in learning, and to be consistent each day for your dedicated time a dedicated place. Some even say your dedicated clothing, right? But to make sure that you have that. Um, for those who are listening that do maintain their five salat or six salat, if you include tahajit, you know that there's nothing that's going to get in your way for that, right? The sky could be falling, but you're you're not going to be late for Asr. <laughs> it's, just, it's just what you do. It's ingrained in you. It's not a choice. It's not an option. Maybe it was early on, but at some point, salat is just... It's who you are. It's if you didn't do it, you would feel like you're not you, and therefore you have to get back to who you are. I say the same thing is with these studies, whether it's Arabic or artificial intelligence or um, computer science or real estate or whatever your your passion, hobby, or interest is. It needs to be something that you take time every day to review. You take time every day to learn anew, and you build it into your sacred space and sacred time to do that thing um if all, if all of us are striving to, to memorize quran which we should all strive to do somewhat then we'd have some kind of routine that we can create kind of habitual triggers off of right so if you sit yeah. for 30 minutes in the morning reading quran after you do that sit for 30 minutes and study arabic or sit for 30 minutes and study real estate or study how to get your beard to look like silly man's you know whatever your interest is then um and then stack stack the habit upon upon what is good, inshallah. Habit stacking is um that's a very very interesting point for sure. And that's uh, I've found that some, since, since I've been a Muslim, it's something I've been able. Obviously, the, the salah is an incredibly powerful um, way of doing that, particularly fajr. Um, particularly, I find habit stacking on top of salat al fajr is like that's that's a very very like powerful part of the day, obviously, and stuff as well. Yeah, yeah subhanallah. Yeah, I find particularly. For the people who have the means, I would very highly recommend people who want to have good routine in their life 
to try to live somewhere along the equator <laughs> because <laughs> having your, <laughs> it's quite a high investment thing and it's not available to everybody. So I caveat it with for the people for whom it is possible. <laughs> but uh, since I've been living in Somalia, just having your salat times at the exact same time every day has had, a, has had a massive impact on my ability to be consistent on all of my pursuits, really. Like like here, Salat al-Fajr in the masjid is always like 5 a.m., okay? Salat al-Duhr is always half past 12. Salat al-Asr is always half past 3. Salat al-Maghrib is always 6 p.m. And then Salat al-Isha is always about quarter past 7. Or, always. There, there might be like 10 minutes each side, maybe, you know, like in terms of, in terms of the Adhan. But in terms of like... Like when you're when you're actually like the salah times in the masjid and the time of the day that you know, it's um yeah it's it's like I'd really struggle to move to somewhere that isn't <laughs> isn't along that it's line. It's funny you say that because when the spring springtime comes around and like right right now Ramadan falls in the springtime for for uh, my region of the United States, and right after Ramadan and into the the end of spring. Before I can focus on my new habits and my new activities and my summer things, I have to do a conscious effort for about two weeks to start shifting my mindset to, okay, I need to start taking naps because each is going to be at 10. It's no longer at 6 p.m. It's at 10 p.m. And, and just the shift of going from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. and then staying at 10 p.m. for a while and then going back down to 6 p.m. and adjusting my schedule to make sure that um, running my kids to football or to jujitsu or or trying to have dinner, or cleaning the house, or um, just trying to get enough sleep in, right? Because when you have to go to sleep at 10 p.m. and then wake up at 3 a.m. for fuzzes, you you have to rearrange your day to be successful, because otherwise it's it's just not going to work. And you have Tell to cut out it. time every year for the to prepare for that adjustment. Tell me about it. Even if I if I think if if ever like Somalia wasn't to work out for me and my family or whatever, I would be look. I wouldn't be looking at going back up to the. To, I'd be looking at going around the, the earth somewhere. I'm like drawing a line across from Somalia, thinking maybe Malaysia would make more sense because <laughs> it's honestly it has such a big impact on your life. Like what like your sleep your sleep routine. Even for my children, like my children's sleep routine. It's dark at six p.m. They know that their body's starting to get tired. They're ready for bed. By, they're ready for bed by seven or half seven or whatever but like in the uk in the uk i try telling yusuf there's time for bed and it's daylight at 11 p.m at night and you know and he's like no it's not of course it's not because it's not bedtime you know so that's that's a big muscular <laughs> no so that's that's a, that's something for for, for for those for whom it is possible but of course we're for of course most of our students in fact who are from typically well, well actually at the 60 steps program our students are very heavy, like UK, USA, Canada. Uh, um, Arabic Unlocked. And Arabic Unlocked is not like that. It's been really, really interesting. We've got loads of students in Malaysia. Malaysia is like our biggest kind of student base. And um, and then throughout the rest of the world, it's fairly even. Like I know I know the UK because Arabic Unlocked is UK-based and stuff. UK is a big part of it. But um, yeah, so, so the students we're kind of serving are in, in slightly different places. But yeah, so we're, we're kind of coming on to... Um, a point now where the next product we're going to be running at Arabic Unlocked is an intensive. It's something that um, obviously I did with Arabic Unlocked, and it's something that I, I really enjoyed. So some of the like some of the deepest relationships I've ever actually had, maybe in my life, I've actually been with like some of you guys, like some of you graduates of the, of the program and stuff. Like, and I really mean that, like because you think the amount of time that we spend together in that short period of time, like over three months, we're spending like four hours a day together. And the, the Arabic Unlocked intensive that we're doing, we're doing four hours as well. We're doing Saturdays and Sundays, like two hours on each day. So um, like over, and we're doing a 10-week one. This is 10 weeks Arabic Unlocked. So we're talking 40 hours together. Like it, and it's very, and the lessons are quite intense. Like studying online, the interaction is surprisingly intense because it's so focused, isn't it? Like it's so channeled into kind of one screen. Whereas, sort of in a classroom, there's lots of kind of gaps in the classroom mechanics for you to take a break and stuff, aren't there? If you know what I mean. Like other students are being tested on something, or um, I don't know, handing out the books or whatever. There's just time, isn't there? There's like kind of gaps in a classroom, but there isn't really that yeah there aren't really those kind of gaps in in these online lessons and um yeah so it, it's something that i'm i'm really looking forward to inshallah I'll be but i think maybe the challenge will be delivering a different program because obviously we're delivering we're delivering quranic arabic unlocked 
um, which is a program that was created by by the team over there before I joined. I've had some input on it, and the intensive version of it is one that I've um, I've kind of been developing the, the plans for delivering it live because it's it's a different dynamic delivering a program live, of course. Like, um, yeah, like even. Like at Arabic Unlocked, the team have kind of understood something that I wish I understood when I first wrote the 60 Steps program, that that delivering through like a pre-recorded course, it has its own nuances that you need to consider, like the student's attention span, for example. Like if like 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 if you if you remember back to some of the stuff we go through in step one of the 60 steps program, like we cover so much in that step. <laughs> you know, we cover just so much. Like that step really could have been one video just on definiteness. Just on definiteness, just on like what what happens when you put an L at the beginning of a word, changing tenween to having one dhamma or something. Like that could have been one video on its own. That could have been a lovely four minute video, that on its own. And then like the basics of gender could be its own video. And and Arabic Unlocked have kind of done that. Like they're like what 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 I kind of burden my students with in one lesson. <laughs> Arabic Unlocked, they've got like a module for it, which is which is interesting. Like looking back, that is how I would have if I were to re-record the 60 Steps program, I, I may consider doing it like that. Um, they they kind of, they have their own roles. They serve their own types of students, don't they, if you know what I mean? Like, so lots of people, like I had the awareness that the 60 Steps program, we inherited lots of students from previous programs. They'd done a few chapters of al because they'd done a few chapters of the Medina books. Or Like I, I realized we, had, we inherited students like that, so they could usually handle it. Um, and I enjoyed that first lesson. I enjoyed giving my little drawing of the deaf general dialing up a number. That <laughs> <laughs> most of the people won't know what that analogy is, but just to, just to give like a brief summary of it, like uh, so. so like when you're trying to memorize things, our brains often remember things that are really kind of weird and abstract. Sometimes even the weirder, the better. You don't necessarily want to have a, have a normal story when you're trying to memorize things. So there are kind of these four attributes of Arabic words that they need to agree on in a phrase. So if we're going to say, for example, something like, you know, a tall man or a beautiful house or um, a clever boy, things like that. Like... These two words need to agree in definiteness, gender, case, and number. I'm not going to go through what, what, all the nuances of those are in this podcast. I won't get carried away with it. But, but like to, to, to help students remember, definite, as in deaf, gender, general, number, and case. I drew this just horrible drawing of a general wearing like a general's hat for the gender, dialing a number as in number, like dual, singular, whatever, on a on, on a on a suit. Yeah, yeah, you remember it because it was well, it was horrific. So of course you remember. It was good. It was good. I really, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed. It. You know, yeah. I I was a fan of all the steps up until uh, which was it? Um, Hollow verbs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I hated that one. I hated yeah, that one that with was, a passion. Yeah, hollow verbs is um that's a tricky one, yeah. I, I remember you raising this concern with me. <laughs> 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 partway through partway through our intensive or, or you might have actually raised it a few weeks after we'd gotten past it it might have it might have taken several business weeks to catch up with you to what they actually are i don't know but yeah just i remember you mentioning just firstly the fact that they even exist is a surprise because you're used to all these, <laughs> <laughs> you're used to all of these lovely three-letter verbs like kerteba and sheriba. You're used to these lovely three-letter, you know, like triliteral root verbs. And then all of a sudden, you've got these ones with a vowel in the middle. And the vowel changes, but not always. And it changes in the past tense, but not not to all of the all of the persons in the same way. <laughs> there's, there's all of this to go through. But um but anyway, yeah, that's that is for the 60 steps program, I think. I think hollow verbs is and, and and final weak verbs, but for different reasons. Those two, like when when I've marked exams, even even since yourself, when I've marked exams, if I ever fail students, it's almost always on hollow verbs, or it's on step twelve, like the monsoub of verbs, like when you say like uri uridu n, and then the verb that comes after it needs to be monsoub. Yeah, yeah, uridu n like I want to eat something. Like they almost always forget that things that come after n are monsoub. It's strange because it's not the most complicated thing. It's uh, like monsoub is is easier to learn with verbs than mejzoom, right? The mejzoom when we're sque- when we're squeezing squeezing vowels out of verbs and stuff, and we're we're and ho- hollow verbs in the mejzoom is a, is a whole other thing, right? Like remembering yes, hollow verbs altogether is a whole other yeah. thing. 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but people, I don't know. Like, that's, it's a far less common mistake with medjizum verbs. Students seem to they seem to be okay with it. I don't quite know, but um, but there you go. Yeah. So, so as you as you've given me, um, and I'm I'm grateful that you've given me some permission to teach like my family and some people like in the masjid um, from the sixty steps. What I found is that giving them uh, a ramp of vocabulary before beginning has been kind of foundational okay. uh, to be able to get them to understand that what they're learning is grammar, right? Um, because it wasn't always clear for me if I was going to be like fluent at the end. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now that's a really good point. And, and being able to understand that this is, this is really grammar. So as I've gone on to other classes and, and talk to different teachers and such, I, I can I can probably say, hey, I have a I don't call it a new jazz, but I have like I have a certificate in grammar, right? And I don't have a, a, a breadth of vocabulary. I can't pull it out fluently, and I may need to review the grammar. But when people say grammar is the hardest part, or even some teachers say you don't even need to learn grammar, I actually feel very comfortable and confident being in that space and saying, okay, well. Once I get the vocabulary and the fluency together, I'm going to be a very, you know, strong, uh, strong speaker, inshallah. Right, and I, I appreciate that, and I give you uh, the credit, and, and may Allah reward you for that. I mean, you know? well, yeah. Um, so yeah, I do. I do kind of start on vocabulary so that people can have some, some, some meat to chew when we start getting into. This is how you do a hollow verb, or this is how you do mansub. Um, as opposed to trying to learn the vocabulary and then apply the rules to the vocabulary in, in the way. That's something that I've found that has been helpful for me in, in helping people along the way. Vocabulary is, um, there's no doubt that vocab is probably the, the, the biggest hurdle in terms of like what attention is paid to it. Like, I think, I think you're right to say that the grammar, even for native Arabic speakers is a, is a real challenge. Like the things that we're kind of quite, we were quite precise about on the 60 steps program about like case yes. endings and things like that. Yes. Lots yes. of native, Ara lots of native Arabic speakers struggle with that. Lots struggle, yeah. But lots of attention's given to it. So it, so it almost balances it out, but the, but that's not the case with vocab, right? Like vocab is massively important, but we're not having like whole vocab courses the way that we have whole grammar courses, if you see what I mean. Right. Like, right. like recently I've, I've, I've been doing a lot of research in like the teaching English space like I, okay. I recently enrolled in a TEFL course and I've been paying attention to, to what they do in the TEFL world because they're very yeah. fluency orientated and they're completely okay. spoken English orientated. Like native English speakers deliver the whole, the whole courses, the whole lessons in English. Like okay. it's a completely different approach to what, what we often do with Arabic. And, um, and I've noticed that they have loads of courses that are like English vocabulary courses. Okay. Like a, they'll have like a whole textbook and stuff, which is English vocabulary. And um, yes. that, that's something that, that's something that I've, that I'd like to incorporate into our work at Arabic Unlocked a lot more because that's yeah. the, the 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 speaking and vocabulary generally even even not in speaking but vocabulary is something that we can we can do a, we can you know do much better on and I I think you actually get more you you get to apply grammar more when you have more vocabulary as well like it yes the the, the yes. like if if you've got a thousand words to put into those those structures and into those rules you yes. you get a, you get a lot more out of it don't you that's yes, that, that's yes, a, that's yes. a, that's, a, that's a really interesting point like do you think do you think with the sixty steps program because we we just kind of have like a fairly uniform template of sort of ten words a lesson we typically try to use them in the exercises but they're more just a list of words to learn. Um, like, it, it, like, do you think it is a case of learning just more words? Or do you think it is a case of... Because I don't think students, after after lesson 10, I think lots of students are already behind on vocab. Like, so it's so, it maybe... Go ahead, yeah. Just, yeah that, that's the question, really. So I'm in a, I'm in a course right now to increase fluency. Um, and there's some things I like and some things that I, I don't like about it. Um, but the thing I would take from 60 Steps and from the course I'm doing right now is that the initial module has to be the harf, right? The actual letters. Um, and that exists. I think after that should be like 500 words, right? And it could be in the format that I know you love, which is like stories, right? In context, getting the, the vocabulary and stories in context, which I think is 
key, especially for novice and beginners, right? Um, and then once you have these 500 words, and you're like, oh, yeah, I see Katsub, I know what that is. Or, oh, yeah, I know Um, I know Ab, you know, I, I know these words. Then going into some of the, uh, the vocabulary that's specific for grammar, right? So like the numbers, that's very specific for grammar. Um, there was also some other lessons, Ken and her sisters, um, uh, Inna and her sisters, right? Those are kind of vocabulary-based lessons, even though they're still grammatical because you have to know Mansub and whatever. But knowing just enough to be able to get through those lessons so that you can kind of take those on as vocabulary. And then because that makes the transition between, okay, we just did like 500 words. Now we're doing grammatical type words and then going into grammar. Now that I've understood all these different things about Mansoub, I've understood Kana and Inna and her sisters, I've understood some vocabulary, I get to hollow, to hollow verbs, I'm like, oh, okay, this is bearable, you know what I mean? Because I, I kind of have a basis to, to understand how raw is going to be different, barea is going to be different than some of the others. Um, and that's what I, I've kind of reflected on and where I've kind of landed um, so far. And then after that, I'm still, I'm still, the jury's still out on whether I feel like advanced vocabulary can be done um, through what I, what, what, when I think of you, I think of like osmosis, just kind of consuming it within context, like a, like link.com, that kind of format, or if memorizing uh, the conjugation of a specific verb and then the, memorizing the plural and the singular of a specific noun is the way to go. I'm I'm practicing the latter right now, but I'm I'm still trying to figure out what I where my opinion lies. I lean towards you because you're my teacher, but I'm still trying to figure out my own opinion. I think there's um those strategies you should utilize them until until you've exhausted them. Like mm -hmm. for example, you can expand your vocabulary massively by um just knowing how to fully conjugate a verb, right? Right, yes. rather than just knowing kateba, you know like whatever it is, 50, 50 words, if you can use it yeah. with all the different persons, right? But I think, like, with each of the verb forms, like, personally, like, I kind of even still do it now, actually. Like, when I when I come across a new verb that I've not encountered before, for example, if yeah. I know, if, if I already am familiar with a verb that looks like that, I can just yeah. kind of put that in the template, if you know what I mean. Yes, um, yes. But like that, it gets to a point when that's kind of served its role. Like you've you've used that as kind of scaffolding, a, a kind of a go-to verb. I think I've, I've made videos previously going through like a a go-to verb for each one of the verb forms. For example, like my my kind of go-to verb for form two is sellema, like because I, I just know sellema you sellimu, and then I like the I like the mustard of these teslim of that as well. So if I ever come across you know, if I ever come across a form two verb, like, you know, darrasa, I know, oh, sallama yusallimu, so it must be darrasa yudarrisu, and you kind of just get used to picking up this pattern. So I, I like to have like a, I like to have like a go-to, and, and and similarly with plurals of words, right? Like, I, like I'm, I'm just kind of familiar enough with enough plurals now that if I come across a word I've never seen before, like, I can probably infer the plural, because I've just, I've seen enough words that, that, and I've seen their plurals for enough words that look like it, so... I, th I think that's smart. There's, there's certainly a lot to be said. I, I think something that I'd like to do with the with our intensive program at Arabic Unlocked is to make use of the time in between classes a little bit because obviously we've got a whole five day working week in between our classes. Like we've got Monday through Friday and then Saturday Sundays when we're doing our live classes. So I'd actually like to use that time for vocab building because vocab building is actually something students can do on their own. Like if they have some kind of guidance, something they can do on their own. And it's actually preferable, perhaps even, to tell, tell students that this is something they can digest a little bit without the intensity of the, 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 the lesson necessarily. So I think that's like a, a time. But I, that's, it's in, to kind of take on board something you said where you were saying like it would kind of be helpful to have some of these grammar specific terms before the lesson. Like coming to a lesson on kana wa akhawatuha, if you've never seen kana before, and you've never seen Sada before, and you've never seen uh, and you've never seen Ospaha or Laysa before. Like those four verbs are some funky verbs in their own ways, right? Like when you first encounter Ospaha, you've maybe never seen verbs that are form four like that before. You've maybe never seen the verb eslema, you've maybe never seen arada. So that's probably new to you. Can is hollow, sada is hollow, but they're but they're hollow in different ways because it's can yakunu, but sari, but sari yasiru, and then laser is its own kind of particular verb because it doesn't have a present tense. It's just laser. So like um 
Yeah. So, so having some of that vocab, but before the lesson, because we quite often focus on introducing the new cab for the lesson in the lesson. And that sometimes doesn't give the student actually enough time to really process it. And, you know, like certainly for me, something that really amazed me actually about yourself and other students who are in the class with you, like Arsima and Juan as well. Like you guys were so much quicker absorbing things than me. Sometimes I just needed five, three to five business days to process something. And I remember being, I remember being in my lectures at university and like a lecturer would just deliver something in the beginning of the lesson or explain something and would be expected to be able to put it in practice by the end of the lesson. In, in one lesson, but, but my, like, obviously that was horrible for me because I just usually needed more time to process it. And I think we'd ease that burden quite a lot if we, if we preemptively gave students um, vocab before lessons, not, not too much before. I wouldn't want students to be sitting on Kana too long before we explain it, but like within the week, if you know what I mean, that's, um, that, that's something that we can really utilize, inshallah. That's, that's something I'll, I'll definitely think about because like, we're, we're planning on running the intensive. I believe that first that the first session is the 7th of October, something like that. It's the Saturday, maybe second Saturday of October, inshallah. Yeah. So we, we, we've got some time um, to add other things in the curriculum, which would be, which would be useful to do, inshallah, for, for sure. Yeah, mashallah. That's, that's very useful. Something something else that you mentioned as well. I wanted to talk about it at the time, but you mentioned a few times about being connected to the masjid. Now, this is something that I think, in in I mean, even in the Muslim majority countries, but it's perhaps um, more challenging in the West. Like, particularly the men, where like it's actually prescribed for us to pray the salah in the masjid. Like, you know, it's 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 really really something that's really neglected, and um, it's it's nice to kind of hear you talk about how that had an impact on your. On, on you being able to get knowledge from different types of people as well. It sounds like you've sat at the feet of lots of different types of people and sat next to different people and, and had those in, had that kind of impact actually in, in the masjid in, in the US. I think in the US, like, it seems like you guys do masjid quite well. Like, is, is it accurate to say that a lot of your masjid are like Islamic centers? Like you have um, more than just the salah going on in the masjid? Or is maybe I'm kind of stereotyping Americans is just doing everything big, but I'm sure I've seen lots of um, lots of masjid in the US that have like basketball courts outside and stuff. But that, that's very rare in the that, like that, that's very rare in the UK that sort of thing. Like we'd have other rooms for whatever else. Like even, very, very even up north where there's more where there's more land and spread out. I'm assuming like Birmingham or Nottingham and things are are a little bit more spacious. Um, you, you, yeah, you, you are right in the sense that like in London, I mean, often there's a lot of massage, particularly in central London, where like the, the rooms are piled on top of each other. There might be like a six floor masjid. That's like fairly small rooms, but like six floors. Yeah, there's, there's one on a street called Dude Street um, in, in central London, which is, is like that. Um, so so you, are, you are right. But um, I mean, even, I don't know, even up north, like quite, quite a lot of the masjid are like conversions from like, like terraced houses that have been converted into masjid and stuff. Um, they're, they're, they're quite often not like purpose built, you know, like masjid. But there are, there are very, very big masjid that do do, do that. Like, a, like in, in East London, even. There's a really like how like East London Mosque is a is a massive masjid and there's a huge building on the side of it called the Mariam Center and in there they've got a surgery in there like they do circumcisions up there and stuff like that they've got like they've got like they've got like events rooms they've got a gym in there like they've they've got they've got all sorts in there so there, there are things like that but I I don't know I just got the feeling from what I've seen from the US and even even when even when I was in the US um, when I was in California like I I saw a couple of times that there were um, just more kind of purpose-built bigger islamic centers yeah yeah i mean of course you know u.s is pretty huge like to get from new york to california by car takes probably three four days right yeah. at least yeah, um yeah, so least, it's, yeah. it's a it's a big it's a big country um however from my experience in places i've been a few places i've been around the country um it depends right as, as all things depend like in philadelphia there's a very uh famous masjid uh um the name of it is slipping my mind right now. It's surprising because I always talk about it. Uh, but it's 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 built into a row of houses and it's about three stories tall, right? Okay. So there's nothing outside to do. There's not even much place to park, let alone anything else. You see, you know, it's it's quiet and then it's time for salat and the street fills with niqabs and you see all these people coming out with those and it's just, it's it's full, right? But then you go somewhere else, like in Boston, and I'm just speaking to the to the New England area because that's 
where I've been living for the last 10 years or so. You'll have a huge master with a huge parking lot that has structures so you can park above and above. It has four full floors. There's a gym. There's a full-time school. There's a masala. There's another second-floor masala for the sisters. There's another masala for sisters with children. Then there's a cafe, and then there's a restaurant. Then there's a Yemeni restaurant. Then there's a Somali restaurant. So, you know, it depends on where you go. The oldest messages in the country are usually converted from um, uh, banks or store shops that used to be part of, um, like, the Nation of Islam. And then when they embrace uh, Sunni Islam, they would convert it to, to masajid. Um, so some of the oldest ones, I know the oldest one I know of is probably, like, from 1920 in Detroit. Used to be a bank, right? So there's no real space for a, a basketball court. Even though they always talk about it, they might put a basketball hoop on the on the parking lot or something like that. But generally speaking, there's just a masala and a bathroom. Right? Mm. So right. It, it depends on where you are. You know, all over the country, they they change and they're different. Um, for me, uh, I'm always so. I'll tell you a story. When I was younger, um, there was a mess that I used to go to, and I had a family, so I started getting involved with the board and whatnot. And one of the people on the board from Togo, he always used to say, Rashid, you should just be here for the slot. Why aren't you here? Just come for all the slot. And I was like, yeah, I'll pray at home. You know, just like everybody does. I got to pray at home. He said, you should be here. We need you here. We want to see your face. I want to see your smiling face. You know, all these different things. You know, brothers. So eventually I was like, okay, well, I'll try and make it when I can. It was like a 15 minute drive to get there. And so I made an intention always to live next to a masjid if I couldn't. I just made an intention to always to live next to a masjid. So then um, the last three places I lived were circling the masjid I'm at now. Um, and I was fortunate to be able to get a house near the masjid I live now. So now I'm the guy telling people, where have you been? I, I haven't seen you. Come to the masjid. Come to Fajr. Come join us, you know. And and the brother who did that to me passed away. So I think I kind of like took on some of the energy when he passed to, to do that type of thing. Um, sure. And I'm always reminded of the Hadith, and I can't quote it properly, but um, the way I like to tell it, tell people, is that you know, Prophet Muhammad saw him. If if he saw you hanging out at home, he'd come burn your house down. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because there's a hadith along the lines, right? Mm, And the word of making Isha in the masjid. You know, so I try and push people for Isha where possible. And then you know, Fajr is just. I find that the people that come to Fajr are the most. Uh, reliable and, and sound people and, and to be around reliable sound people makes me a better person and makes me more sound um, it makes me better at work and and then I also stress about work less right because your identity is by what you do the most at least that's what I find if you are a carpenter you'll say I'm a carpenter right if you're an Arabic teacher you say I'm an Arabic teacher if you are a um, salesman you say I'm a salesman right but what if you do a job and then you leave that job and you're still making salat in the masjid. And then you leave that job, and you're still making salat in the masjid. And then, you know, someone in your family passes that you really depended on, you're still making salat in the masjid. And then you start learning new languages or getting new hobbies, or you decide to be a jujitsu squatter like Sam, and you're doing that for like three, four years, right? But you're still making salat. Eventually, with all these changes, the only thing constant will be who you are. And if you've been consistent with your salat, then you won't really care how you change and mm-hmm. what you become because you have that identity that you're 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 banking on right you've been making an investment in your identity as a as a person who makes a lot as a person who tries to be in the message for the five or six a lot right i try not to even think about five i try and think of six a lot and mm-hmm. if you form your identity on that then everything else just becomes a little bit more relevant and and when things become irrelevant you become confident you become focus and, and more carefree and a lot of people want that in their lives right so may Allah make us all people who have an identity uh, upon the haq and upon khair I mean I mean I mean I mean like I want to say like, yeah just like my my talab as well just like my my beloved students may Allah bless them and increase them in their knowledge um yeah, and may Allah reward them for, for being people who have chosen the Arabic language as something worthy of their time and of their resources so um yeah, that's that, that's a very nice place to, for, for us to end, inshallah. I'd, I'd like to end by saying thank you so much for, for giving us some of your time um, at the Arabic with Sam podcast. And 
Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to get back in touch with you, see that you're still engaged in learning the Arabic language. And even before we turn on the cameras for you to be speaking Arabic with me as well, it was really nice for me to hear, mashallah. That's very nice. Um, so, but, so before we go, I would, um, I'd like to just kind of um, uh, openly ask you if you have any parting advice for the Arabic students. Of course, there'll be lots of people listening who um, are much earlier in their journey than yourself. People who are in the very beginning, maybe they've just finished learning Elif Berter or they've learned a few words of vocabulary or um, they've made a decision in their life that it's time to finally have an understanding of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Well, what advice would you give to somebody in that position? Yes, for learning I, will give, I will give good I will give good controversial advice. Let's have it. It's the same advice that I give to my own family. Um, and I've been lenient with my own family. And then I've realized that this advice is really all that matters. And I need to be more firm with my own family. And that is, uh, it's not worth the time and effort to try and create context and meaning and, and, and philosophy around letters and words and things it sometimes it just takes a matter of sitting down reading the word 200 times forgetting it for a day or two and read it again 200 times and and putting it in your bank you know sometimes the emotions and the fears and the apprehensions get in the way and Arguably, that's just, you know, Shaitan trying to stop you from doing what you what you love and falling in love with the language, falling in love with the language of Allah and getting all the blessings of being able to speak the, the language of Jannah. So, you know, I don't know how to put it kindly for, for those who are um, more uh, politically correct and, and, and thoughtful and, you know, are, are, are probably gentle sisters maybe out there watching. But for all the brothers out there, suck it up, you know, just... Just put the 15 minutes a day, cut it out of your schedule. I mean, you could scroll a little less. You could eat a little less. You could sleep a little less. No, don't sleep a little less. But you, I mean, there's many things that you can do that you can find 10 minutes, 15 minutes in your day. And just, just repeat it. Don't think about it. Don't ponder over it. Don't question yourself. Don't question other things. Don't think about the outcome. Don't think about goals. Don't think about what you're going to achieve. Just like when you brush your teeth, just just do it. And then after you've done it a number of times, you'll you'll have something. And it may not be the most impressive thing. It may not be the most robust thing. It may not have significant meaning and robust philosophical uh, background, but you'll you'll have something. And that's something you didn't have before. And inshallah, it'll stick with you. And and everything I've done that has been good. It's been just from, you know, being like, man, Sam did it, so I'm going to go do it. (laughs) (laughs) Jazakallah khairan. Thank you very much for tuning in to the Arabic with Sam podcast, and I'll see you guys in the next one. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.